0: as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. I only. You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into the wrong station. It was dark by the time my train pulled into Venice, and a fog had rolled in off the Adriatic, so the platforms in Santa Lucia Station floated like rafts in the mist. I was exhausted after eleven hours on and off local trains through the Alps, and I still had a bit of a hangover from the night before in Munich. I'd fallen in love in Munich, but nothing had come of it. I had low expectations for Venice. Everything I'd read talked about how much of a tourist trap it was. A friend of mine who'd been there a few years earlier described it as a nightmare. That ended up being true, but maybe not for the reasons he'd had in mind. But the sea was rising, and the city was sinking, and I wasn't the sort of person who could afford to just come back. Last chance to see St. Mark's. So I went. It was late November. Even there, the tour season was done, and I only had a couple of strangers for company on the train. At the far end of the car, there was an old Italian man sitting, his white hair even whiter under the fluorescence, and I couldn't tell whether he was fighting off sleep or death. A few seats away from him, a beautiful young couple sat, leaning into each other, whispering soft phrases of Italian to each other. Seeing that and remembering Munich made me feel a little bit sick. Sitting closest to me was another traveler, to whom I took an immediate dislike. She was white, but wore her blonde hair and dreadlocks held back from her forehead by a faded purple bandana. Even though it was the cold season, she was wearing Birkenstocks. Her feet were calloused in a way that made me think she spent a lot of time slacklining. With a sinking feeling, I noticed that she also had a Canadian flag pin on her backpack. I was the first one off the train, and I waded through the fog to the main concourse of the station. It was nearly empty, and the coffee kiosk was closed. I could hear my own footsteps ringing against the building's edges. I couldn't tell if it was fascist architecture or just modernist. The building vomited me out into the night, and I found myself on the flagstones, even more alone. When I looked up, I was a little bit surprised to actually find myself in Venice. Actual Venice, like in the pictures, the paintings, all the history books. A forest of spires, an archipelago of red architecture, a labyrinth of white blinds, greened bronze trellises, Byzantine arches. The canals were rivers of fog, flooding up and over the flagstones. Through the haze, lights winked gold and orange on the other side of the Grand Canal. Just a shred of music fluttered through the mist, and not the expected lute, or mandolin, but the deep thrum of top forties. I walked north, through a quarter that my phone told me was called the Canareggio. A vaporetto prowled through the canal below me, only a shred of its roof sticking up through the fog, like the nose of a swimming crocodile. And emerging from the silence, I stepped into a little square that was filled with light and noise. That top 40 music was belching from speakers under the red and white awning of a little trattoria. The restaurant was mostly empty. A pair of waiters huddled together under a heat lamp, smoking cigarettes with their arms crossed. The only patrons on the patio were seated next to the sign, which listed the restaurant's menu in ten languages. They were eating that most authentic of Venetian delicacies. Spaghetti and meatballs a la Newman's own marinara sauce. A peddler was trying to convince the man to buy the lady one of his red roses, or, failing that, a selfie stick. The next restaurant over seemed to be closed for the night, and beside that was a stand selling cheap gelato and blaring tinny kraut rock from a 30-year-old radio. On the one hand, it was a bastardization of cuisine meant for tourists. On the other hand, sugar and trans fat is sugar and trans fat. I got myself a scoop of pistachio gelato that looked like it had been pulled from the core of a nuclear reactor and ate it in four bites, tiny spoon be damned. With sticky hands and a belly full of dense green remorse, I continued towards my lodging. Just steps after leaving the square, the sound and the light were sponged out by fog, and I made the rest of my way in chill and silence. The boarding house was in another square, this one dark and quiet. Though the door had no window, I could see lights on in its upper story. Every other window facing the square was dark. Up close, the glass was brown with age. But inside the boarding house, it was warm and bright. The lady at the desk spoke no English, and I spoke no Italian, so we compromised on equally mangled French to sort out my check-in. Upstairs, the room was tiny. Almost every inch of floor space was taken up by three cots and a bunk bed. One bed had a bag sitting on it, and the other four were vacant, so I dumped my non-valuables on the top bunk and headed out for a walk. Now, how do you describe a dead city after dark? I mean, whatever logic had governed the construction of these streets had vanished with the people and economy that had given rise to it. These buildings had meant to house three times as many people as lived in the city now. So two thirds of these houses were home to no one but ghosts. And the other third, well, I wondered which third of these windows had eyes to see out of them. At one point I found that my way forward was cut off. A short flight of steps led from the dry cobblestones beneath my feet to a square submerged in ankle-deep seawater. It was the Aqua Alta, the high water which comes when Sirocho winds roll up the Adriatic from the Sahara, filling the city with fog and lifting the tides of the lagoon up and over the city streets. In the middle of the square, an orange tree rose up out of the water, no more miraculous than it would have been from the endless flagstones of the city. On the far side of the square, a lamppost lit the arch of a wrought-iron bridge. At that point, I decided to turn back. When I arrived back at the boarding house, the bed that had been claimed before now had someone sleeping on it. The other beds also now had bags and coats resting on top of them. The bag on the lower bunk had a Canadian flag patch on it. Dreadlocks girl, from the train. I tried reading that night, but I was too tired to focus. That night, my dreams were all might-have-beens from my time in Munich, and then, in the hours before I woke, they changed into dreams about running through the streets of the city, while the water rose and rose and rose.
1: Hi, I'm Carrie.
0: Nice to meet you. I'm Mark.
1: I'm like Saint Mark.
0: I guess so. In addition to dreadlocks, girl, Carrie, I guess, my lodging mates were a rich kid from Mumbai, an English girl, and, strangely I thought, a local man about my own age who muttered something about tourista, and walked out of the room when Carrie tried to introduce herself.
1: Wow. What a small soul.
0: I know. The Italians
1: are so rude to tourists, it's like, I'm here to give you my money. Show a modicum of respect.
0: To be honest, I didn't blame him. Even from the narrow window of the upper room, even in the dead of the low season, I could see how the streets below us were overrun by backpacks and selfie sticks. On my side of the room, I got ready to follow him.
1: Hey, we're going to St. Mark's today. Want to come with us, St. Mark? St. Mark?
0: Uh, well, I was...
1: Going to Venice and skipping St. Mark's? Come on, go with us, it'll be fun.
0: Well, there wasn't any getting out of that one, so I agreed. The four of us got breakfast at a trattoria, which seemed to have burst fully formed from the bare stones next door to the boarding house, and then we set out into the city. Now, how do you describe a dead city during the daytime? Teeming with maggots? Okay, maybe that's a little bit misanthropic. But the closer we came to the center of the city, the more claustrophobic I began to find the tight streets and the scrum of bodies. All kinds of people from all corners of the planet brought together to consume terrible food or cheap goo or high-end goods that they could have purchased over the internet all lent a veneer of value by the century's lost reputation of the city as a mercantile hub. Yet above everything, only a few dozen inches removed from the fray, The blank windows of the second, third, and fourth stories were black and empty. Up there, it was still night in Venice, and whatever ghosts and secret watchers had lingered last night were still hidden in those upper rooms, just out of sight from the windows. It was an easy enough group of strangers to travel with. For the most part, the din of babies crying, parents shouting at their children, and amateur photographers yelling at the people posing in front of their iPhones made it impossible to force conversation. When the route took us through unexpected and empty passages, Carrie was quick to fill the silence with sentences that usually involved words like the universe, and Nick, the rich Indian, was quick to reply with sentences starting with the words well actually. For her part, the English girl, Mira, seemed willing to blend into the background. When we arrived there, in spite of all the people, all the noise, all the peddlers hawking selfie sticks, all the rank consumerism, the Piazza San Marco was still the Piazza San Marco, the floating domes of the basilica. The pink brick diamonds, like blinking eyes, in tessellation on the walls of the Ducal Palace. The red monolith of the Bell Tower, the endless pillars of the Procuaries. The distilled wealth of six centuries, the metaphor of time and change made into a three-dimensional space that could be walked and touched. This high tide of awe and sadness just rose over me as I looked at it.
1: It's amazing how the universe brought us together here. Yeah, the universe in 15th century mercantilism.
0: Of course, it wasn't long before the dense crowds pushed us out from the square and onto the Rivadelli Schiavoni, along the shore of the lagoon, and without any particular sense of direction, we followed this along to a quiet part of the city, where a strip of park gave rise to rustling trees by the water. A sign told us this was called the Park of Remembrance, and we stopped for lunch as a soft drizzle began to fall among the leaves. It was a quiet place, and even Nick and Carrie seemed subdued. Maybe it had been a long morning. Maybe none of us had slept well. My bunk, at least, had been several inches shorter than I was tall. Maybe it was that we were the only tourists in sight. Silent, and at the other end of the park, an old woman in a black dress and a black scarf over her head sat watching us in silence. A greasy cafe looking onto the park seemed to hold only tired-looking Venetian men sinking into their mid-sixties.
1: Oh look, it's our friend!
0: Over by the pier, a group of young people stood smoking. They all wore black as well. Everybody who actually lived in the city seemed to feel that their lives were a funeral. Oh god, he's seen us.
1: Let him see us, I don't care. He's the one who should be embarrassed. I'm just about ready to get moving on, anyway.
0: Yeah, me too. Something about the quiet of that park seemed to have settled into our skins. And when Nick suggested taking the long way back, through the less busy parts of the city, all of us agreed. We walked north and west and found ourselves in a silent quarter of the city. The avenues were wide, and the buildings had slots above the first floors for awnings, but no awnings were spread, and no commerce happened beneath them. The buildings were all in a state of gentle disrepair, as though time had begun to file them down, but no person or animal or wind or rain had taken a hand in speeding up the process. The further we walked, the more beautiful the buildings became. Among the rich ochres and siennas common to the city, we began to see buildings painted in vivid greens, crisp teals, vibrant golds. Pillars that supported cantilevered second stories grew thinner and more elegant. Windows became taller and slimmer. The glass now came in colors of gold and bottle green, and small gilt statues of angels and winged lions could be seen winking from the rooftops. And yet, no people. Not a soul in the first ten minutes, and then fifteen minutes, and then twenty minutes of walking, further and further from the Arsenale and the San Marco. The drizzle had let up, but its grey sky had begun darkening to slate. For a moment, the sorocho breathed warm air through the streets, and we were startled by the noise of breath in our ears. Other than the long echoes of our own footsteps, I realized it was the only sound any of us had heard in twenty minutes. No voice, no cry of bird, no clap of wave. Here, in this place, when we crossed over bridges over the canals, the water was still and green as jade tile. As abruptly as the wind had come, it was gone. The silence seemed to redouble and apply pressure to our eardrums. Where are we? All of us flinched when she spoke. It seemed a violation of the silence, a voice in the library, a shout on Remembrance Day. Oh, uh, I think we're in the Castello here. Oh, that's not helpful. The map function on my phone placed us on a beige square connected to other beige squares by bridges. No... Names of places had loaded, and when I tried to zoom out, the app wouldn't respond. Sorry, my phone's acting up. Anybody else? Let's see. Hmm. Sorry. Low battery. God, I'm always on 5%.
1: I can't get any signal. Carrie? Ooh, sorry.
0: The phone she held up to show us was a near antique Samsung flip phone.
1: How do you even live? So, are we lost?
0: We're on an island. There's only so lost we can be. If we keep going up and over, we'll arrive back at the Canareggio eventually, right? Really? What are the chances that we're not going to run into another group of tourists in Venice? None of them laughed at that. Of course, they were unsure. I wasn't anywhere near as sanguine as I sounded. The city was a labyrinth, and neither the roads nor the bridges could be counted on to get you where you needed to go. Another moment passed as everybody tried one more time to get their phones to work, and in that moment, I heard... Quite clearly a footstep, and I turned my head sharply. What? Uh, nothing. I just thought I heard something.
1: Is somebody there? We're a little bit lost.
0: Nothing. All right, well, let's keep going then. Are you losing it out here, Mark? (laughs) Guess I must be. But I didn't find it very funny at all. The hairs were standing up on the back of my neck. We kept walking and found ourselves at a huge avenue. It was paved with perfectly square blocks, which diminished into the distance, like a study in linear perspective. At the end of the avenue, a red brick church cut the southern light against a blackening sky.
1: I can't believe nobody's here! It's just like how you can go to the Uffizi, and everybody just goes to the room with the da Vinci's and misses everything else.
0: It was clear that Carrie had to force herself to say something, rebelling against the demands of the silence. From the tight jaws of everybody else, I could tell that they felt the same sense of wrongness that I did. The sky was too dark, the light behind us was too bright, the outlines of light and shadow among the windows and pillars, the gaps in the pavement, they were too crisp, too sharp, and it was all far too silent. And for all of that wind that had come off the Adriatic, it was hot, dry, close, and stifling. The church that we could see ahead of us was far too big. It dwarfed San Marco. I felt sure that I'd taken far too many history courses to have never heard of this building. And there were footsteps behind us, definite footsteps. They walked when we walked, they stopped when we stopped, and when I turned to see where they came from, I would see a strange shadow bundled in the space between the buildings. Arriving at the base of the church, I realized how much larger it was than I'd even realized from a distance. The dark, clear-story windows, which had seemed so slim, were wider than my outstretched arms. The transoms, which had seemed needle-thin, were wider than the trunk of my body. As I rounded one end of the church and looked up, I saw a huge rose window, black against red, covered in stained-glass pictures that were impossible to make out. I looked over for the others and was surprised to see how far they drifted. I'd scarcely been aware of the movement of my own feet. Nick and Carrie were just a pair of dark silhouettes near the far end of the red church. They looked like ants against its godlike bulk. As I came back to them, they seemed to be mesmerized by the building, looking up and up at its titanic heights. Near the end where they were, it had a tower, which soared up to a height nearly double that of the bell tower at St. Mark's. At the peak of that spire was a golden weather vane, and, unlike St. Mark's, the figure on that weather vane was not an angel. I watched Carrie's face as she stared at that distant gold figure. And as the color left her cheeks, I knew she was having the same realization that I was. She turned to me.
1: I don't think that we're in Venice anymore.
0: Guys, where is Mira?
1: I I thought she was with you.
0: They looked around. How long has it been since you saw her?
1: I I don't know, ten, fifteen minutes?
0: Carrie, when I was walking back over here, there were three of you. Three? Who was the third? The third silhouette had been taller than the other two, and I'd thought it was Nick. But as I came closer... I saw that Nick was one of the smaller shadows, and that the third figure was gone.
1: Mira? Mira?
0: We called Mira for five minutes, and wandered across the square looking for signs of her. Nick suggested we split up, but none of us had any interest in doing that. Wait, hold on. She gave us her number this morning. Somebody call her. I reached into my pocket, but something was wrong. The inside of my pocket was wet, and when I pulled out my phone, it was half-melted and warm, syrupy metal and plastic ran between my fingers like molasses. At this point, I can remember my heart beating so quickly that it felt like a hammer striking me in the chest. Carrie pulled her phone out, but in her pocket it had become reshaped and was now molded into the form of a piece of classical statuary, a Venus figure, but in black plastic instead of white marble. I don't remember speaking, but the voice came out of my mouth. We need to get out of here. We need to retrace our steps and get back to... We just need to get back. The others nodded, and without another word we began to go. We rushed back down along the avenue. Along a parallel path on the other side of the buildings, the footsteps came with us. It was still so silent, and as I timed the footsteps I realized that the stride they belonged to was long. Very long. Nearly twice the length of mine, and I'm over six feet tall. We need to go faster. We turned a corner that we'd rounded before, and though the route was the same it was now scattered with statues that hadn't been there before all classical figures like Carey's phone had become, but with strange deformities. One like Antinous, but with a perfectly circular hole taking up most of his chest. One that was like a Juno figure, but with dense, spiraling ram horns on either side of that blank-eyed head, and in the place of legs, a pair of elegant but outsized arms. There was one that was an enormous hand with genitals in the palm, standing on the legs of a five-legged horse. We hurried through the forest of statues, and the footsteps quickened pace with us. We came to a canal. We'd crossed it on our way there, but it had grown wider since we last saw it, by a factor of five or ten. It was spanned by a bridge that looked the same, but was now freakishly elongated in a way that seemed to defy physics.
1: Not that way! Here, you idiots!
0: Carrie and I had jogged onto the bridge, but Nick had taken a left instead and now stood at the top of a flight of steps that led into the canal. Nick, what are you doing? It's marble, it's fine. A sound like tumbling stone came from behind one of the buildings, and all three of us started. Nick, come on, we have to go. Nick shook his head at us and skipped down the stairs onto the water. Its flat green surface supported his weight, and he jogged halfway across the canal before stopping to look back. As he did, a pair of white hands rose out of the water and wrapped around his ankle. He screamed, and he tried to kick them off, but another pair of hands took him by the other foot. And suddenly, the canal was alive with hands, swarming like a shoal of fish driven to the surface by dolphins. More and more of them leapt out of the water and writhed their damp way into the folds of his clothing. He screamed for help, but Carrie and I were already running. By the time we reached the other side of the bridge, the weight of them had dragged him under the water. And as we turned back, we saw that the owner of the footsteps that had been following us now stood at the other side of the bridge. And he was terrible. We ran. And as we ran, the dark skies which had been gathering above us finally broke, and in breaking released an unbelievable torrent of water on us from above. We ran through the loggias and the plazas, between buildings and up and down flights of stairs. The follower kept pace with us, hunched over with those strange, indistinct arms held furtively close to the shadowy join of his upper and lower body. He never stayed the same. Each time we glanced behind ourselves at him, he would have a different face, a different number of limbs, he'd be more real or less real. The rain was now thick as muscle, and a warm wind was tearing among the buildings. With the rain and the heat came the aqua alta, and green-gray water began to rise over the flagstones of the city, drowning first Carrie's bare feet and then rushing over the top of my boots. The follower was now on the surface of the water, and now moved along the walls like a projected image. Though his proportions always changed, in general he seemed to be two men divided amongst each other, a pair of legs ending in a pair of legs, a torso taut by another torso, one solemn statue-like face with blank eyes superimposed over another face, with teeth longer than a hand, eyes turned inside out. We turned down a new street, where every arch was hung with five sets of wind chimes. The sorocho furied among them, and their clangor only stilled when the water crept up to clasp them silent. We were now half running, half swimming through that flooded city, and the follower was sometimes behind us, sometimes ahead of us, sometimes straddling over us with his double or triple length legs, like a sick colossus flicking in and out of reality, never quite touching us but always reaching, always reaching. A flight of stairs was transformed into a waterfall, and it swept us into the pool of a beautiful square ringed with loggias. The water was up to my neck at that point. I'd thrown away my bag with my passport and computer, but I was still exhausted as the current swept me toward the center of the square, toward a slender orange tree. I held onto it with one hand and managed to get a hold of Carrie with the other as the whirling current pulled her by. Behind us, in one corner of the square, the follower danced. Forward and back, forward and back, forward and back. I looked up, and as I did, I realized that I knew where we were. It was the flooded square from the night before. We were on the edge of Venice, between it and that nameless, quiet quarter. Carrie, come on! I know where we are! I know how we can get back!
1: Look at this lovely orange tree, Mark. Look at the lovely flowers.
0: She reached up for one of the oranges in the tree, and as she reached, the water bore her up, forming a low pillar so that she could pull one from the branches. I saw that the fruit was heavy in her hand, and I could see that it was lit from within. Light passing through the skin like an amniotic sac, And inside, something dark was swimming in little circles.
1: Look at the lovely fruits, Mark.
0: Carrie! Carrie, no! Don't eat that! But she didn't listen. And without peeling the skin, she bit right into the fruit. I looked into the corner of the square. The follower was no longer there. I looked back at Carrie, and as her teeth broke the membrane of the fruit, I saw that it was him swimming around inside. With a displacement of air like a thunderclap, the follower expanded in midair to his full size, and since Carrie's mouth had been partway around him, the expansion tore her head apart. Pieces of her fell into the water, but over the falling rain I couldn't even hear the splashes. As the follower, still floating in midair, bent over her body to begin feeding, I struck out for the opposite end of the square. My lungs were burning, my arms and legs felt like lead. I'd never been so tired in my life. As I swam, I saw a white flicker in the water. And then another. A hand, and then another hand. Something plucked at the leg of my pants, so I lashed out against it. The end of the square was so close, but the water around me was suddenly writhing with wrists and palms and fingers. One of them grabbed my shoulder, another tore at my belt more and more. They were all around me, bearing me down, pulling me under the drowning surface of the water. I reached out for the stone steps of the square and found that I was clutching a pair of hands and they pulled me towards the shore and they were joined by a second and a third pair. I was dragged up and out of the water and collapsed to the rain-soaked pavement, gasping and vomiting up seawater. I forced myself up onto my hands and knees and vomited again. I looked over my shoulder into the square and the follower was still hovering among the branches of the orange tree, feasting on a compacted red mess which had once been Kerry. It looked up and made eye contact. It flickered once and reappeared closer. And as it reached, I heard a sound like a shutting door, and it was gone. And Carrie was gone, and the hands were gone, and the square was a slightly different square. Still ringed by Loggia, still with an orange tree in the middle, still slightly flooded, but just... different. Somehow, so slightly different. I looked up to see who had been pulling me out of the water... And I saw that it was the young Venetian man who had shared our room in the boarding house the night before, and his friends from the park. A group of them were lighting cigarettes and muttering to each other in dialetto. Oh, oh God, thank you. Th- thank you. I-, I don't know. Where was I? Whoa, whoa. But the local man just looked at me with disgust, and he leaned over and spat. He said, fucking touriste. And he and his friends wandered off into the Venetian night. The Wrong Station is created and produced by Alexander Saxton and Anthony Botello, with music composed by Alain Zitrin. This week's episode, The Quiet Quarter, was written by Alexander Saxton. Carrie was played by Mirka Lozell. Nick was played by Arun Varma. And Mira was played by Rachel Hart. Tune in Sundays for new episodes. You can support The Wrong Station by subscribing on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and email us at therwrongstation at gmail.com. If you like watching spooky things as well as listening to them, and if you live in Toronto or nearby, you can watch me, that's Anthony, in a production of The Crucible this January put on by Hart House Theatre. That's January 19th, going for three weeks, and you can buy tickets now. Until next time, thank you for listening.